The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. HSBC's jarring ESG message, Davos in springtime. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from New Jersey. Environmental, social, and governance-based investing has its share of critics. But a recent event at HSBC shows that those punching holes in ESG are becoming more vocal. The bank's head of responsible investing at the Asset Management Division said that policymakers and other global authorities were exaggerating the risks of climate change. Breaking Views Associate Editor George Hay beams in from London to explain why that puts HSBC boss Noel Quinn in an awkward position. Next, I'll pass the mic to Peter Tal Larson and Lauren Silver Laughlin, who are in Davos, Switzerland, covering the World Economic Forum after a two and a half year pause. While the spring sun is shining, the mood is pretty dark, given the economic uncertainty, inflation, and the war in Ukraine. Those factors have introduced tension to earlier promises made to help change the direction of climate change. Hi, George. It's good to talk to you. Hey. Hey, so let's let's talk about this HSBC situation that you reported on earlier. So this is an interesting story in that, to me, there are two characters here at the bank. And one is, his name is Stuart Kirk, who is the head of responsible investing. And he came out, from my understanding, and said that basically, you don't have to really worry about climate risk. And then on the other side of the situation, we have the uh, chief executive officer of HSBC, who, and I'm hoping you can explain this, where climate is kind of a big issue. So they seem to be at odds and there seems to be sort of a fight going on within HSBC about how the bank should think about climate risk. So why don't you just tell us what exactly this guy said and and why yeah. does it know Quinn, who is the chief executive officer of HSBC into this kind of weird position? Yeah, and why he, why, why he kind of immediately rode back on it and disassociated himself from what Stuart Kirk had said. Yeah. yeah basically, Stuart Kirk got up at the, this conference last week and he, as, he, as he say, he said investors shouldn't care about climate risk. And it's a pretty surprising thing to say if you are doing that job in any organisation. But very quickly, this has kind of snowballed into a kind of social media shouting match between people saying he should be, should be fired and people saying he sh- shouldn't be cancelled for speaking the truth and all this kind of like hoopla. And so I suppose, but you know, from our, our perspective, I was just looking at what did he say that was kind of reasonable and what does he say that is less so? And in the first category, I mean, he was basically talking about from a kind of financial risk point of view, what do I need to care about? And he's saying HSBC's average loan book length, the average length of its loans is six years. And he's saying, you know, is the world going to end in six years? And the answer to that is a hopefully um, likely not and you know that's that that is not um an unreasonable point um and it's in fact stuff that um we've written in the past to do with you know not just banks also to do with like why do people still think oil companies are worth something and the, mm-hmm. the reason for that is not necessarily they don't care about climate change it's because the, the majority of the, the the value of those companies and and a lot of companies is just in the next decade in terms if you if you just run the numbers so that's not particularly unreasonable to say that and in in a wider sense he's kind of keying into a lot of people think that the whole ESG firmament is 
slightly self-serving or it's a way for to kind of plug just a new way to flog products to investors and it's more just like the new fashion thing rather than anything material so all those kind of things which were kind of implicit in his speech were just you know they're not unreasonable but if you step back i mean ultimately i wasn't particularly impressed with the totality of what he was saying because he was kind of cherry picking numbers that he was kind of citing numbers from the ipcc the kind of main climate body and saying oh yeah you know even if we have four degrees of warming um by 2100 that's only three percent off gdp and then he was saying think how much the economy is going to grow by then and you know basically chill out and if you know if you're familiar with some of these ipcc um, documents you'll know that like three percent off gdp by 2100 is is at the low range basically of what people think could happen it goes up to way way above 20 so you basically if you're just cherry picking one number and saying this is a reason not to you know to not to not to worry then that's that doesn't really cut it uh, for me and a lot of people and in any case uh, there's so much uncertainty on what the actual kind of hit from climate change is. If you are just kind of presenting everything in black and white, then that is kind of misleading in itself. And the other thing about it, he was he was really kind of, you know, <laughs> he did this kind of now notorious line about it doesn't really matter if like who cares if Miami is six meters underwater by whatever date yeah. um and you kind of think well um, people who live in miami probably <laughs> well, are <laughs> they, they they probably would think that kind of sucked but it, but like yeah. i mean there's a particular embarrassment from an hsbc perspective is they're yeah. a global bank yeah. and they you know they have a lot of kind of asian business and uh asia is part of uh, is a part of the world where uh climate change even if sitting in europe and north america you know we don't get too badly hit immediately by it it could be a, you know, it, it, that's not the case in parts of the developing world. And it's just kind of singularly unfortunate for someone at HSBC, particularly the head of responsible investing, to kind of be, you know, rolling all that kind of stuff out there. Can, um, can I, let, let me just so, c- cut in here and ask you something, because I, I want to go back to the to his title. I mean, right. so he, <laughs> as you said, he's the head of responsible investing, and it seems like he's just pouring cold water on all over his title, right? Like, I mean, like, there's a kind of, in some way, agreeable, just kind of completely, completely kind of depth charge of, of his own position, because it's like, you don't usually see that kind of thing. The, these conferences are usually pretty boring. So, so like, kind of, for someone to just kind of drop those kind of things, it's, it's an event, but there, there's nothing wrong with polemics. And there's nothing wrong with kind of pushing the envelope a bit and and if he didn't tell you if he, if he kind of called his presentation this is why investors don't care about climate risk going back to what we were talking about before then that would that would have been kind of near the knuckle but basically fine but his whole thesis was why investors shouldn't care about climate risk or needn't care about climate risk and that kind of sort of re- sort of reasoning is you know it's pretty vulnerable to the repost of what's wrong with being safe rather than sorry so it's yeah. just a bit like why would you not think that especially if you're the head of responsible investment <laughs> um, but anyway the, all, all that stuff is kind of obvious but i mean I, I i suppose there's a kind of the wider picture and you mentioned noel quinn hsbc chief executive I mean, I, I suppose if you situate these comments in what is going on at the moment, it's particularly difficult for him. And, and, and that's why my piece on Monday was kind of talking about it being particularly bad timing for these comments to kind of drop. Because basically, if you if you wind the clock back about to, to, no, to November, COP26, this big climate conference in um, 
Glasgow, you, you basically had this almost kind of unanimity between the financial sector and the kind of green climate lobbyists. And everyone was going to agree we, we need to set kind of near term 2030 decarbonisation targets and we need to take it all seriously. And all the big banks signed up to this big thing called GFANS, Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And everyone thought, OK, well, this is where it's going to go. And the people, banks are going to take things like this seriously. And then since then, we've obviously had the war, we've had energy security crises, all this kind of stuff. And that basically, if you're Noel Quinn uh, or any of the other big bank chief executives, you 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 were probably after after COP26, you were probably going right. Well, I've signed up to this thing, which means I probably have to get out of uh, oil and gas investing or oil and gas financing and all that kind of stuff quite sooner than I otherwise would have. And you might have thought, oh God, that's not actually great for my bottom line because um, I'll, I'll make less money if I do it quicker than I yeah. otherwise would have. And so you might have thought thought you might have seen the kind of the war and the high energy prices and the kind of shift in political focus you might have seen that as a kind of you know quite helpful because you might have, you know and what literally some of these banks are doing at the moment is saying well we say we've got we're going to do these decarbonization targets by 2030 but maybe if possible maybe we could make them a little bit softer or a little bit easier to do because we need to have more oil and gas investing in the very short term and so yeah. all of those things are heading in the same way but like what Regardless of that, you still, as Noel Quinn or anybody else, you don't want to kind of give off the vibe that you don't care about climate change. And so that makes it all the more unfortunate that this, these comments from your head of responsible investing have dropped yeah. in the middle of this very sensitive stage where you might be hoping to kind of slightly change the change, the, like move down the dial a bit. And that's probably the kind of one of the big impacts of this, because people will just be looking at HSBC and thinking they, they don't care about climate change. Right. So. Well, how, and let me ask something else. Is Stuart Kirk, is he kind of an outlier in this area or well, is he kind of somebody that like there is an actual schism going on right now between ESG and climate risk and yeah. just kind of more broadly? Is, is, yeah. is, does he represent something beyond HSBC? Well, I mean, certainly he doesn't have a... Tr as far as I'm aware, he didn't have a track record of saying all this stuff, which was kind of why it's uh, so striking. But there are very obviously people in, in the financial sector and the business sector saying ESG is kind of nonsense. And obviously Elon Musk was having a pop at ESG ratings because Tesla was kind of um, uh, downgraded in one of them. And, and, and again, that's not that's perfectly he's perfectly entitled to do that because everyone knows that ESG ratings are just like all over the place and not really a great mm -hmm. guide to anything. But yeah, you're, you're certainly seeing a kind of pushback on whether ESG does what you, you think it should be doing. To me, that's more of a kind of ESG isn't a particularly handy guide or isn't, isn't doing what you want it to do rather than just climate risk isn't a thing. And, you know, <laughs> and that, yeah. that's what makes these, these comments particularly they're, they're kind of in and of themselves and they're kind of pretty damn pretty pretty damaging really okay well george i suspect you will be following this more closely in the coming <laughs> weeks as you are esg guru thank you uh, <laughs> nice for your time i appreciate it thanks very much hello and welcome from davos i'm peter tharlarsson sitting here on the terrace 
of the Davos Library in, in sunny Switzerland at a weird time of year. We normally come here in January when it's cold and dark and snowy. We're here in May where it's been warm and occasionally raining and definitely not snowy. Um, but it's the World Economic Forum again, slightly odd time of year, slightly fewer people here, but still a lot of discussions about big themes. I'm joined by Lauren Silver Lachlan, who's our uh, New York-based columnist and also a Davos newbie. So, Lauren, <laughs> tell us what you thought about your first Davos. Uh, people keep saying it's smaller, and that's kind of hard to believe because it seems busy. I'm exhausted. But... Um, it's been interesting, intriguing, a little bit disheartening, and kind of depressing all at once. But great to be here to sort of get a sense of all sorts of stories that I don't don't hear and see on a regular basis. Yeah, there's not been a lot of good news this year, has there? Like, seems to be a lot of gloom about the economy, about inflation, about possible slowdowns, falling markets, interest rates going up, and so forth. And then obviously uh, the war with Russia as well. So. It all seems to add up to, a, to, a, to quite a dark picture. Yeah, it's funny. Like Having read the coverage out of Davos for all these years and never being here, I always got the sense that people solved the world's problems in platitudes. And now it seems like even the platitudes aren't working. Like <laughs> People can identify the problems and no one has an answer. And I'm a little bit worried that that could potentially be worse than at least having some sense of how to solve global issues. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, one thing that's come up quite a bit is, which was we were, they were talking about two years ago as well, is, is, is climate change. But I think the interesting contrast is two years ago, there was this sense that climate change was the number one problem. Everybody needed to get on board and deal with it. Of course, slightly ignoring the fact that there was a huge pandemic about to break out several <laughs> weeks later. But, um, uh, but this year, it seems... We're detecting a bit more of a tension between the lofty climate goals and the reality of, of rising energy prices. Yeah, it's funny in the you know early, I say early part of the week, you know, a few days ago, the first meetings we had, there was just this complete and absolute commitment to environmental goals. And as a few days have gone on, John Kerry spoke yesterday, there was just a twinge of acknowledgement of the importance of the fossil fuel industry and the role that's playing in global stability. And so, you know, now I've been hearing sort of whiffs of, oh, okay, we have to figure out how we're all going to work together to solve the, both of these problems at one time. Um, and I think it just shows both the sort of sh short-sightedness of global leaders when they were making these commitments a couple of years ago and the very complicated future they have in trying to put that puzzle together. Yeah, there's definitely a sense of, sense of tension there. The other thing that there's been a lot of talk about, uh, but again, maybe not so many solutions, is, is the food crisis. So there is a sense that, that you know, the West sort of planned or attempted to plan for, for, for what might happen uh, to energy, energy supplies in the event of sanctions against Russian invasion of Ukraine, sanctions against Russia. But they didn't really plan for what would happen to food. And that seems to be really the crunch now because we're hearing some quite sort of apocalyptic warnings really about food shortages, food prices going up, countries not being able to feed themselves. Did anybody have any answers? No, I mean, what's weird is that there have always been poor people without food and you don't really, you know, you, you kind of 
maybe talk about that too a little bit and then, and then move on. And, and here's a case where you actually have a crisis coming. And this is a sort of circular crisis between with tension between commodities. So you have an, on one side, you know, oil, which is in high demand, supply is being stretched, prices are going up, that's pushing up prices for food, and uh, compounding that is, you know, a shortage of wheat, and that's going to lead up to some countries who are not wealthy already having, a, you know, difficult time feeding their local populations. And that could potentially be a massive destabilizing factor for certain parts of the world. And at the same time, nobody, and I've had several conversations about that, not one leader has said, we'll help. You know, mm-hmm. we will lend, we will supply, we will grow. You know, it still seems like a problem that maybe religious and charity, charitable organizations are going to try to solve. And I worry that it's going to be too late by the time governments realize they need to step in. Yeah, no, and it's, uh, there's also the weirdness of talking about food shortages over uh, smoked salmon canapes and uh, various <laughs> other things, but that's just the, uh, the weirdness of Davos. I mean, it is striking uh, that, that some of the notable absences this year. I mean, there's been, normally you expect, you know, there's a yeah, U.S. president comes, even Trump came, you know, uh, or, or a couple of years ago, Xi Jinping was here. I haven't really had anybody with the exception of Olaf Scholz from Germany. Um, and the, the kind of star has really been Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, although he's beamed in by video a couple of times to, to the sessions. And it seems also like on the business and finance side, there are also some, some fairly high profile absentees. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the U.S. Uh, companies and banks were absent. You know, Jamie Dimon it was it was apparently you know staple here in Davos, and and he wasn't here, and it's, it's unclear you know exactly why. Like again, you know, if Davos has always had all the answers for everything, you know, there's not been a clear picture of why they haven't shown up. Some people say, oh, they're busy, and this is just a different time of year. I have a hard time believing that. You know, other people say that it's because they didn't want to show certain alliances with Russia, but Russia is absent. They certainly wouldn't have shown those alliances had they actually come. Um, Other people have said, oh, you know, Jamie Dimon has a lot of Russian contacts and then he used to come and party with the oligarchs and maybe that's a bad look for him. You know, it's a bad look probably for a lot of U.S. companies to show up and be partying and they probably didn't want to have their photos snapped looking really jolly, you know, and, and, and drinking and having a good time. But also, they need to be a part of the global conversation in how to solve these problems. And, you know, critically speaking, they're, they're hiding a bit by not stepping forward and, and speaking up in a place like this. Yeah. The people who are here in great numbers are people from the crypto and DeFi and Web3 world. This, the, the main drag here in Davos is lined with, with shops that have been taken over by companies like Circle, and Ripple and, and, and all kinds of other set of crypto projects. There's a house of psychedelics where there's like a party every night, apparently. Um, I guess, I don't know, have you, have you uh, spent much time with the crypto crowd? I spent some. So I went to a party last night and I went up to someone, started speaking to them, and I suspected they were potentially invested in cryptocurrency. So I casually asked, like, oh, well, you know, have you been involved in crypto? Thinking he would say, no, you know, a little. And he was very proud, proudly, demonstrably said, yes, I love crypto. I'm fully invested in crypto. And I had no idea, like, 
how he's still here. You know, he must have lost a lot of money, but it just seems like there's not a huge recognition, you know, from tech valuations to cryptocurrency. Classically, there's not a huge valuation that, you know, the bloom has come off the rose on both of those investments. Yeah, absolutely. And there's always, there's always some people here who, uh, who kind of make a big splash at Davos and then disappear and are never seen again. So it will be interesting to see if we come back in January, perhaps, when back in the snow, whether, whether uh, some of these people show up again. Uh, Lauren, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for, uh, for being here. And uh, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll report more from Davos on breakingviews.com. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That's our show for this week. I want to give a shout out to our producers on this podcast, Sharon Lamb in Toronto and Amanda Gomez in New Jersey. Please subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Megaphone, Acast, or anywhere else you go for your audio cravings. Also, don't forget to check out BreakingViews.com. Thanks for tuning in and listening.